the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Debate for many years over the author of the book of Hebrews. We can't say for sure, but probably was Paul. Amen. But uh, anyway. And there's a wonderful verse in uh, chapter 12, verse number 2, that says, Looking unto Jesus, the author or the one who begins or started, and finisher, that's the completer of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. So there's a lot there in those two verses, verse 2 and 3. But notice the first part of verse 2, looking unto Jesus. We're teaching on Wednesday nights about divine healing. If you're a Bible believer, then it should be no problem at all for you to believe that the God who created your body is the same God who could heal it and can restore it and fix it. Now, most Christians, most Bible believers believe that that is a possibility. The problem is for many people, and it's sad but true, is that a lot of people just aren't sure if he will or not. You know, in Matthew 8, there was a leper who came to Jesus with that same attitude, the same mental problem, the same spiritual lack of faith. He said, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And of course, Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, the Bible says, and said, uh, touched him and said, I will. I will. Aren't you glad he said, I will? Yes. Not I won't, or I'll think about it. Or give me some time, I'll get back to you. No, he said, I will. Be thou clean. And the man was healed. He was healed. Wasn't complicated. Wasn't difficult for the leper. It really wasn't difficult for Jesus at that moment because he healed him on a promissory note that the price would be paid. All the Old Testament people, anybody, whether they were covenant people or not, anybody you read about before the cross that was healed, got healed on that promissory note. They were healed on the coming price that would be paid, which was what Jesus did on the cross. And anytime we talk about what Jesus did on the cross, we're talking about a redemptive right, something that he bought and paid for. Not anything we earn, not anything we deserve for that matter, but it's something that comes to us by grace through faith. And that's exactly the way divine healing comes. It is by grace through faith. Now, there are rare instances where God, in his sovereignty, does certain things that we just can't figure out. That someone gets a miracle, someone gets a healing, and it seems that they did nothing that we've been taught that you need to do. Nothing that we've been instructed that we should uh, go through or take care of a process in any way. But you know those are rare, very, very rare. But there is a process of healing that works every time. The process of faith works every time for those who will work it. 
Now, of course, this doesn't take God's sovereignty out of the equation at all. This is how God, who is sovereign, determined that we would deal with him. The just shall live by faith. That's in the word three or four times, Old Testament and New. It is just a principle. God's Old Testament people, God's Old Covenant people, God's New Testament people, God's New Covenant people, all of us are required by God to walk by faith, not by sight. That's how we please God. Hope is good, but you will never fully please God just hoping. You'll never please God by just wishing. You'll please God by believing. And believing is a choice. You need to really let that soak in and sink in. Believing is a choice. And of course, the real first step to believing is the choice we make when we decide what we're going to listen to. And then when we decide what we listen to, then we we decide what we believe. And there's the journey of faith. Faith begins where the will of God is known. So exercising faith isn't earning the blessings of God. It's simply positioning ourselves to receive what God freely offers. And so what we're doing at this portion of the teaching about healing is to look in the scriptures at the various ways that people position themselves to receive healing in the scriptures. Now we're not covering every single healing in the whole Bible of course but we're going to look at several and we've already looked at one and that was in Numbers chapter 21 and if you will you could turn to that passage again Numbers chapter 21 and of course you know the people of Israel got tired of the supernatural manna that they were getting. They began to grumble and complain and murmur and judgment came and fiery serpents came among them and many of the people died. They spake against God. They spake against Moses and uh, began to say things that were just grievous to the heart of God and so much people of Israel died. You see that in the last portion of verse number 6. And verse number 7 says, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord. Notice, it's a sin to speak against God. Sometimes we think about sin, we think maybe of a number of different things that are sin, I'm sure. For the most part we would think that. But I don't know if you've thought about it, that when you complain you're sinning against God. If you have a habit of griping and finding the, the negative in everything and complaining, there is no pleasure that God gets from that. Moving right along. We just don't want to be that kind of a person. You can't walk by faith and be an be a ungrateful complainer. You can't, you can't be a negative person and a person of faith at the same time because faith is never negative. Amen. So... They realized what they had done and they repented and they asked the Lord, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, they asked Moses to pray unto the Lord that he would take away the serpents from them. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent, we know this was a bronze serpent or brass serpent, 
and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. And of course, to this very day, that is a symbol of, uh, of medicine. You know, the, the ambulances sometimes have it on it. Doctors, it's this, it's this symbol, the serpent on the pole. If you ever wonder what that's about, it goes right back here to Numbers chapter 21. And the interesting thing is that this is a picture of redemption. And of course, it's very uh, almost like we would have to take a second look when you first see this. Could this be possibly right? How could this be a type of redemption, which means it would be a type of Jesus? But it was a serpent who is a type, of course, of, of everything that's wrong, everything that's bad. Well, of course, the way that it's a type of Christ is that Jesus became sin with our sins. He became cursed with our curse. And the curse includes sickness. So Galatians 3.13 says we've been redeemed from the curse. And so, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> this particular verse is showing us that, uh, well, I mean, verse 8 says, Make the uh, fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. This is the type of us looking unto Jesus. So that's why we started in Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus. The next verse, verse 3, consider him. So this is a, this is a, uh, a picture of what we're encouraged to do in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. So this is a timeless principle. It's a faith principle. It's a receiving principle. It's a deliverance principle. Is to look to Jesus. Verse 9, and Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, <clears throat> and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And so the first account of divine healing we're looking at, I'm not saying it's the first one in all the scripture, of course, but this first one we're looking at has the principle of look and live. What you're looking to is going to have a great deal to do with whether or not you get healed. Some people look at their symptoms. They check in the mirror or they check on, you know, their body if it's something, you know, that they can see without a mirror. Or they always base everything on what the blood tests say or what the x-ray picture said or whatever it may be. And the idea in this passage is that if you ever want to move from the place of just looking at your problem, you're going to have to change your gaze. You're going to have to fix your look, your gaze on something else. And that's a choice. That's a choice. You might say, well, do you know what's wrong is staring me in the face every day or I feel it all the time or every time this or that or the other happens, I'm made aware of my problem. Every time I get up out of a chair or every, you know, whatever you might uh, say about it. But the thing about it is you have to choose to always keep looking to Jesus and you have to consider him because it's a, it's a battle not to consider the symptoms. Now, we want to go over, uh, in the same vein of, of uh, thinking, we want to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter number 10 and look at a principle here that is very important if you're going to walk by faith and not by sight, and if you're going to receive healing. Because I can guarantee you that there are going to be times in all of our lives when, um, 
whenever we're going to have to fight the fight of faith, and it's not going to be easy on our flesh. Our flesh is going to want to look for the snake. Because, you know, as you're finding in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, you just can think with me for a minute that you would be very tempted to keep your eyes on the ground if snakes were all around and people were dying because they were getting bitten by these snakes. It would be very hard to look up when the enemy is down. But faith always looks to Jesus. Faith always considers Jesus. Now the world doesn't understand this. Carnal people do not understand this. This makes no sense to people who are not spiritually minded, whose minds aren't renewed to the Word of God. It makes no sense whatsoever. They'll be the first to tell you, well, that's not common sense. Common sense tells you, and then they fill in the blank. The problem with common sense, and it's not that there's no value to it at all, but the problem, problem with common sense is it's all too common. If you want a miracle, you need something that's not common because miracles aren't common. You're going to have to move to another level. So Paul says here in verse number 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. So there's a battle. Never going to get around that. There's a battle. Aren't you glad that it's a good fight, the fight of faith? It's a fight we win. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not natural. They're not based on our senses or our feelings. In other words, physical or emotional or any other way. They are not carnal, but mighty. That's powerful through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, I know and you know that there are demonic activities in our world. We know that the devil is called the prince of the power of the air. So we understand that there are demonic strongholds in certain places that manifest in various ways. That's why some parts of the world and even some cities are kind of known for certain sins and certain types of of uncleanness and wrong things. There are demonic strongholds. We understand that. But this verse is not talking about that kind of a stronghold. This verse is not talking about dealing with the stronghold over the city of San Francisco, for instance, or over the city of, uh, you know, Austin, Texas, or wherever you can think of that it has, you know, turned into basically a cesspool and a mess pool because of uh, bad decisions and all kinds of crazy, goofy people. Amen. Forgive me if you're from Austin. It's a good thing you're here tonight because this is a better place. But anyway, um, that's not what this is talking about. This, this stronghold that's referred to here is right between your ears. Amen. Doesn't mean you're demon-possessed. Doesn't mean you have a devil. It just means that there is a battle in the mind. Your mind is the battlefield, and that's the place where the devil launches his primary attack to try to keep you from receiving from God, to keep you off your faith, to get your eyes on the problem, not on the answer. And so what are we supposed to do? How do you pull down this kind of stronghold? And the next verse tells us how, and it also gives us insight into what kind of a, of a stronghold these are. It says, casting down imaginations. Imaginations. Everybody say imaginations. That is mental imagery. That is the picture in your mind. Cast that down. 
imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the what? The knowledge of God. So we get more clarity about what kind of a stronghold this is. This is a stronghold dealing with our thinking. And of course what we're thinking affects our feeling. And we're told that, that we are to cast down these thoughts, that, that these imaginations and these, these thoughts that come against the knowledge of God. Well, what is the knowledge of God? It's, your, it's the Word. It's your Bible. That's the knowledge of God. And what does the knowledge of God tell us about divine healing? It tells us that we were healed 2,000 years ago on the cross through the finished work of Jesus, that it is a redemptive right for everybody that's saved. God considers them healed. It's just a matter of receiving what he provides. So we have to cast down the imaginations and the thoughts that exalt themselves against this kind of knowledge. And furthermore, it says, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of of Christ. Now, how do you cast down a thought? How do you cast down these kinds of imaginations? We know now what they are. We know we're supposed to do it. How do I do it? With words. Words are more powerful than thoughts. That's why Jesus said, by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. He didn't say by your thoughts you'll be justified. He said by your words. God has thoughts he thinks towards you. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I have towards you. But it's not just God's thoughts, it's God's words that are going to make the difference. God even knows that he needed to do more than think. He needed to tell you what he thought. And you know what? You need to tell the devil what you think. You need to tell the devil what you know. And you need to tell the devil what you believe. The battle will be won in the arena of words. It begins in the realm of thought. I want to say that again. That's so important. The battle begins in the realm of thought. You win in the realm of words. And so you cast down thoughts with words. So when thoughts begin to come and they come to everybody, sometimes it's like uh, machine gun bullets. You know, they're just one right after the other after the other. And it sometimes seems relentless. And sometimes they get so crazy and they get so far out in left field, you just you know, if you didn't know what you know, you'd wonder, where, would that, where did that come from? It's not in my heart. That's not what I think. It's not what I want. It's not even what I believe. Where did that come from? Well, it came from the devil. It came from the devil. And you might think, well, you know, he should know that I know better. But you know what? It's worked so well for him for so many years on so many people. He just keeps on doing it. Occasionally, he finds somebody like you. And it doesn't work. But I want to tell you, you're the exception. Not necessarily the rule. You are the exception. Most Christians talk as much unbelief as any sinner out there. Now, they may not cuss, unless they really get mad. Uh, they, may, <laughs> they may not use 
little bad words that might for some be questionable and others are not. I mean, I, you know, all that, those gray areas. They may not do any of that. But you know, I'd rather cuss as talk unbelief. <laughs> I mean, at least the Lord, you know, if you're going to ask the Lord to forgive you for something, don't let it be unbelief. You know, you might get mad and say something. I don't know. The Lord might say, well, I got mad about that too. But he, did, he didn't say what you said, though. <laughs> I promise you. But anyway, let's get away from that. But the point is, I really would. For me to say that I don't think God would heal me, that I don't think God is a good God, that I'm not sure of his character, I'm not sure of his nature, I would, I would rather cuss as to make that kind of a statement because I don't want to misrepresent God. I don't want to insult God. I don't want to hurt my father in any way. And I don't want to hurt myself with that kind of talk because that's exactly what you'll do. You'll destroy yourself. Death and life, Proverbs eighteen twenty one says, is in the power of the tongue. And so if you can't say words of faith, just don't say anything. You know, I don't know. It seems like I think Americans may be the worst. I don't know. I don't know everybody in all the world, of course. But it seems like Americans think we've got to talk all the time. And we've got to have an opinion about everything. And we've got to have something to say about it into every conversation. It's all right to be quiet. Amen. Amen. How do we bring a thought into captivity? With words. With words. I mean, your mind will always follow your words. Your mind will always follow your words. So if I'm, if, uh, you know, if I'm talking about the fact that, that I have on a black suit and a white shirt and a red tie automatically your mind, you can start imagining that. Of course, I don't have that on. So why did you change your view? Your mind goes where words go. And notice, your mind will even go where other people's words are taking you. If you listen to them, if you give attention to them, then they, their words will take you where they want to take you. That's why it's very important you don't listen to just everybody that says, I'm a preacher. Or everybody that says, I'm speaking for God. You better make sure that from your own Bible you, and your own spiritual witness by the Holy Ghost within you, you better make sure that they are speaking for God. Because if you're listening, they're taking you somewhere. We take people on journeys with our words. You know, people start telling you a story. They start telling you the details. And you know what you do? Your mind, you just start, you start following along. And have you ever been in that situation and you're thinking, I've followed as long as I want to. Let's hurry up. Let's wrap this thing up, you know. I'm done. I'm ready. I get to the point. Well, the point, the reason why, you know, you know why you get frustrated that way? Because as long as they're talking and you're listening, they're taking you where they want to go. And God wants to take you where he wants you to be. And he wants to take you to a place of healing and health and recovery and restoration. He wants to take you to a place of longevity to live an abundant life.
So it is extremely important what you listen to and who you listen to. It's so important that you fill yourself with the word so that you can then with your own words cast down those imaginations. You know, there have been times when I've talked to the devil and if someone would have been around, they wouldn't have had a clue what I was talking about. But since the devil fired that dart at me and he suggested that, he knows exactly what I'm talking about. And so when I resist him and rebuke him or when I quote scripture, he knows what I'm talking about. And as long as I fill my mouth with the word of God, I am in essence shutting the devil down because you can't listen to more than one voice at a time. Amen. You, you just can't do it. Um, you go to a room with a hundred people in it and everybody's milling, milling around, talking, you know, kind of socializing type thing. Uh, you know, you don't hear what, you don't hear a hundred people talking. You might hear the noise of a hundred people talking, but to discern any one voice, you have to hone in on the one. And so as people normally do, they, they congregate in little groups. And so you may find yourself in this group and you're listening to the person who's talking in that group. You may a few minutes later be over in a different group and you're listening to somebody else talking in that group. You go to another group, you might be the person talking. But always it's that one conversation, that one line of speech that you're following. And you might say, well, Pastor, I know this. But see, we need to be reminded of this all the time, over and over and over again. Paul told the Philippians, you know, that to write the same things to you again is, is needful and it's safe. We find safety when we hear the basic truths of the word over and over again. I tell you what, if somebody ever comes along to you and what they're saying is so far out that you or anybody you know of has never heard of it, it's probably something you better stay away from. I have a friend who used to say, I guess he still does, uh, if, it's, if it's new, it's probably not true. And that's a really, really good way of looking at it. And so this first method, first way of healing, this first Biblical account of healing in Numbers chapter 21 had to do with these concepts. It had to do with getting your eyes off what you could see and on to the serpent on the pole, which was a type of Jesus. So whether they realized it fully or not, they were healed by looking to Jesus. And whether we've ever thought about it before or not, the truth is that's the same way you get healed today, by looking to Jesus. Not by feeling of your body to see if the knot's gone, the lump's gone, or how you feel when you move this joint or that joint, or if, you know, the, the x-ray comes back with this or the tests come back with that. It's by what God has said. We choose where we look. Amen. Now, I want to go to the second one tonight. Can you believe that? We're actually moving on to another one. Second uh, Kings chapter 5. I want you to turn there with me. Second Kings chapter 5. And this is a very familiar story to people who are Bible students. And so we're not going to read every single verse and, and take a lot of time with the narrative. But it's the story of Naaman. Naaman, of course, was a Syrian general. He was uh, in a nation that was basically an enemy of Israel. Uh, he was not a Jew. He was not a covenant man. He was not a believer per se. And actually, uh, the Syrians had taken captives from Israel and uh, brought them back into Syria. And uh, Naaman's wife had a slave girl that was in her service. And uh, she waited on Naaman's wife, verse 2 of chapter 5. 
And verse 3, And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Now think about this. This, this prophet, Elisha, had such a reputation for the miraculous that this little girl knew that if Naaman could only get to him, he would get healed. I wonder how many people really look at coming into the house of God as their opportunity to get something from God. Can you imagine that if people really thought there was something to receive? That the, can you imagine how many people would come? So see, the church's job is to prepare for the supernatural, learn how to minister to the supernatural, and so when people come, that we can give it away, that we can give it to her. <clears throat> and so um, one went in to Naaman and told him thus and thus, said the maid that is, the, that is of the land of Israel. So the king of Syria uh, sent Naaman there and sent him with a lot of gifts and a letter to the king of Israel and, and uh, all this kind of thing and uh, told, uh, told the king of Israel, you know, uh, I've sent my servant Naaman to thee that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. Verse number 6. So what we see is that Naaman uh, went under orders of the king, but the king really didn't understand the story. The king just sent him, one king sent him to the, to the other king, but, but it wasn't at all, you know, he didn't have an understanding of what was going on. So finally, after a lot of consternation on the, uh, of the, on the part of the king of Israel, uh, it says that, um, you know, verse 9, So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. So they finally got him sent to the right place. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. So what we see is that Naaman came to Elisha. Elisha didn't even go out and speak to him. Now Naaman was a... Very important man. He was the number one military man. He would be the equivalent of the United States chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was the most important military man in Syria. He had come with all these bountiful gifts and riches and wealth. He was a man of great importance. There was an entourage with him. People, I mean, this was, this was big time. And he comes up to the house of the prophet. The prophet looks out, sees who he is and what's going on, and he doesn't even go out and speak to him. He doesn't even go out and speak to it. Now, you know, uh, sometimes when people operate under the anointing or they operate in their particular gift, we don't always understand their temperament. We don't always understand everything they do or don't do. And I'm sure if there was uh, uh, some people by, they might would think, well, this is very rude. Uh, don't you at least owe him a hello? Uh, shouldn't you go out there and shake his hand and say, how are you? I'm... I'm Elisha, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the main prophet here these days. I used to hang out with Elijah and give him a good story about the, all the past and try to encourage him in his faith, tell him about some of the miracles you saw under the ministry of Elijah and some of the ministries, uh, you know, in, in your, uh, miracles in your own life. Tell him about uh, taking Elijah's mantle and, and throwing it out over the Jordan River and it parted and you went over on dry ground. Tell him some of those stories. You notice he didn't do any of that. You see, we have to be very careful that we don't try to put God in our box 
of how God's supposed to run church. How God's supposed to do miracles. How God's supposed to act. A lot of times what we're doing is we're getting in our head. We're getting in our flesh. We're getting our, in our emotions. And though our intentions may be good, we can sometimes miss the anointing by being too much in the natural and not enough in the supernatural. Elisha didn't do anything wrong, and he wasn't being mean, and he wasn't being rude. He was being effective. They tell the story about Smith Wigglesworth, the great English evangelist from yesteryear. Sometimes he got rough with people. There were a few people, some people, that he actually hit them. One man had stomach cancer and was near death, and he actually punched him in the stomach. He was immediately healed. It was a miracle that we're talking about now almost 100 years later, 80 years later or whatever. Well, you don't go around hitting people just to be hitting them. I wouldn't advise you to do that unless you know it's God. Well, he hit uh, the man and somebody, um, you know, it didn't, he didn't immediately, uh, just like in ten, you know, two or three seconds, he didn't get his healing. And somebody yelled out from the crowd and said, you brute. And Wigglesworth said, shut up. I know my business. Well, after the man was healed, we don't even know who said, you brute. Nobody remembers him, except that that's what he did. Nobody knows who he was. So the point is, we have to be careful to not try to do things that are spectacular on our own, but we also have to be careful that we don't try to minister to everybody out of our head. Can you say amen? So that's what Elisha did. And of course, uh, it worked. So that's a pretty good sign that everything was cool. It, it, it all worked. But notice verse 11. Naaman was wroth. That, that's the old English for he was angry. He was mad. And went away and said, Behold, I thought. You know, that gets more people in trouble than anything just about. I thought. I think. Now let me tell you what I think. When you hear that, <laughs> you're in for a bunch of stuff usually. But uh, he was wroth and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. In other words, Naaman had it figured out. This is how it's going to happen. And he goes on further. Are not Abana and Parfar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke unto, spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. Notice, obedience. Everybody say obedience. He responded to a command that had been given under the anointing. I don't have a vocabulary that is adequate enough to describe and express how important it is to obey a faith command when it's given under the anointing. A lot of people miss their supernatural manifestation because they have figured out how it needs to be. And they, 
disregard the word of the Lord for the hour. And the thing about these manifestations and these uh, instructions, the thing about these kinds of instructions given under the anointing of the Spirit, the person who gives them doesn't make it up and doesn't control it. And the person who it's directed to doesn't have a plan B. There is no plan B. Elisha didn't say, go dip seven times in Jordan, but if you don't really want to do that, come back and see me. We'll, we'll see if there's another way. No, it was just this way or no way. Now, we live in a culture today where people do not like that. People do not like being told anything that they must do. I mean, it, it's, just, it's just a real issue. Uh, you know, parents are not teaching, not, not you, I'm not talking about you, but many times parents are not teaching their children to, to respect authority. They have no respect for authority. They're not teaching their children respect for authority, and that's why when they uh, finally end up in trouble, and they do. Because you see, we're born rebels. We have to be born again to get that out of us. And we have to be trained and taught how to follow instructions. Rebellion, the Bible says, is as the sin of witchcraft. We think it's harmless, maybe, or just little harm, or not too much. But God thinks it's a real serious thing when people don't obey what the Lord tells them to do. And it's very important, when, especially when it comes to worship, when it comes to the presence of God, when it comes to flowing in the anointing. You see this all the time, even among people who are full gospel people, Pentecostal, word of faith, tongue-talking people. There's a move of God in a meeting. It's time to move. It's time to respond. It's time to do what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to do. And they don't. And then after the service is over, they well, you know, I, I want you to pray for me. Well, of course, most ministers are nice and they pray. But you should have come when the, when the, when the move of the Spirit was there. And that's where familiarity can be a problem. Because we think, well, you know, I've been going to this church for years, and you know, here they go again. Well, we're going to have another prayer line. We're going to lay hands on people again, or we're going to do this again or that again, or I'm being challenged about giving one more time, and, you know, I don't know. Well, and, and if you're not careful, you'll miss the move of God. And there are a lot of people will do this, because, and this, we're talking about healing. A lot of people, because they got healed a particular way uh, in the past, Maybe not too distant, but maybe it was long ago, years ago. This is the way the Lord ministered to me, and this is how I got my healing. And so now they think that that's the only way they can get their healing. And so when the Spirit moves, and, and, and they should respond, and, and they should... And see, because the thing about the move of the Spirit that, and responding to the move of the Spirit is because that's where you touch the anointing. It's not an issue that you don't believe God. As a matter of fact, it's evidence you do believe God that you would touch the anointing. And the way we touch the anointing is by obedience to the commands, not only of the written word, but obedience to the move and the flow of the Spirit within a service. 
But you, you see people all the time. They, they, can't, they can't even come to the front of the church and do what they're told. You know, ushers try to help them because you've got little short people like me trying to minister to people. And it's just better if I can stay on, up uh, on this step at least and minister. You've got to come to people. That, they don't want to do that. I don't know if they're afraid I'm going to electrocute them or spit on them or, or what it is. And you, and that, you know, it sounds almost like I'm being petty, but the problem is when people get in that mode where they just don't want to do what they're being asked to do, they almost never receive. They're short-circuiting the power. They're short-circuiting the power. When it's time to praise, it's time to praise. It's not time to go to the bathroom. It's not time to go get a drink of water. It's not time to talk about what we're going to do tomorrow. It's not time to look at your phone. It's time to praise. Whoo, that's good preaching for an old guy. I'm just trying to tell you what causes an atmosphere where miracles happen. I'm trying to get us to the point where it's not just something we talk about that happened 4,000 years ago, but it's something that's happening right now. For every one of us. Amen? Well, you know the story. Finally, he did. And when he obeyed, he got what he was looking for. And it's so true. Responding to commands is so important. Let me give you one other example we're going to go tonight. Uh, the blind man that was healed by going to, uh, by Jesus in John chapter 9. Now, you remember the story how he came to Jesus, and Jesus made clay of spit and dirt. And honestly, that is different. <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic. That's kind of strange. I mean, to our natural thinking. I mean, I know that if I had a little bowl of dirt up here, and I just kept spitting in it, and then I took my fingers and mix it up a little bit, and ask any one of you, come up here, I want to rub this on your eyes. Um, you'd probably have a problem with that. I mean, I would have a problem with standing up here spitting and doing the stuff in front of you. Why would Jesus do that? Well, he always said this. He said, I only do what my, I see my father do. Why would God have him do that? And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I don't pretend to know everything. But you know the story. He told him to go wash in the pool of, of Siloam. Tradition says that there was a, a, a kid that led him and evidently took him there. But anyway, he washed. And when he washed off the spit and the dirt, the mud, the clay, he could see. Now, I'm sure that when we get to heaven and we talk to that man that was healed in John chapter 9, and I expect we'll see him there, I'm sure he'll tell you it was well worth it. His life was totally changed in a moment's time. Well, actually, it was more than a moment. It was a process. I don't know how long it took him to get to Siloam. He couldn't see, so he probably didn't move as fast as someone who was a sighted person. So I don't know how many minutes it was or how long it took. 
But as soon as he completed, everybody say completed. As soon as he completed the act of obedience, he got his miracle. And so I think a good place to leave us tonight, and we've got plenty of other things to talk about other Wednesdays to come. As we look at these different cases of healing. But I, I, want you to, I want you to ask yourself this question. Have I completed the last series and set of instructions God gave to me? What's the last thing God told me to do? Did he tell me to do something maybe about my diet? Did he tell me to do something about uh, resting my body? The I call it the Sabbath principle. I'm not interested so much in a day as the fact that we do need rest and downtime regularly. God thought it was necessary regularly, weekly. Um, have I dealt with him? I mean, I'm sorry. Have I obeyed him about what he's dealt with me about in some other area? Amen. You see, because many times it's just the obedience to God in those areas that releases the flow of the spirit that we've then we look back and say huh I'm better I'm healed I'm well whatever that symptom was it's gone you might say All right, well what was it it doesn't matter if it's gone does it and can I tell you something else and this this might be worth the whole trip here tonight if you didn't get anything but this it's good to know this when you resist the devil, when you cast down imaginations, when you bind, when you pray in the Holy Ghost, when you quote scripture, and when you win victory and something in your body changes, pain leaves or sickness goes, or you see a definite, absolute, positive change through using the Word of God and using faith, then guess what? There was a spiritual component. It doesn't matter what the tests say. It doesn't matter what they call it. Because when you dealt with the devil properly, and I'm not saying you're demon-possessed or even had a spirit causing it per se, but generally speaking, when you deal with the spiritual stuff and it goes, then you know it was a spiritual attack. I've had things like that. Stuff just come out of the blue and I don't know where it came from. And it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't fun. It hurt. It was... It was weird. And I know where naturally our minds want to go. Well, you know, you know what the devil always tells you? Well, it's probably cancer. If people had cancer, as many times as the devil tells them they've had cancer, everybody would be dead. <laughs> or, you know, it's a heart attack. And like I often say, and we laugh about it, but it's really true. He never tells you it's just gas. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Or you ate too much and so you have a little palpitation or something once in a blue moon. He doesn't tell you that. So, you know, he's a liar. And we look to Jesus and when we deal with issues and they go, we realize the devil wanted me to take that bait. You know, he was dangling that over me. If I would have followed up with that, I could have made a major deal. I could have had thousands of dollars worth of medical tests and procedures. I probably would have been prescribed something because, you know, the way people are today in the Western world when it comes to medicine, doctors are under pressure. It's almost like people almost demand that they get some kind of pill or something because people actually think that's the answer for everything. And it's not. 
And some of those same people, if you tell them, well, God's word says it's medicine, they'd laugh at you. But it is. It is. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Father God, you know and we know that this study isn't over. We've got a lot more ground to cover. But we thank you for what you've imparted to us tonight. We thank you for what you've reminded us of. And for every bit of new and fresh revelation, we thank you for the opportunity to sow the seed. Otherwise, we water good seed that's already there. And so, Father, tonight I thank you that we're learning how to deal with these issues. The things that come at 2 a.m., the things that come on off days when there's no church and nobody's close by to encourage us and nobody's there to tell us uh, a good word. We just have to rely on you and rely on the word. But we know that's enough. We ask your blessing, Lord, for every person. And may this, this lesson tonight, may these words tonight find lodging places in good hearts and produce good fruit. In Jesus' name, I agree with you, my brother and sister, whether you're here in this building, whether you're watching online, I agree with you for healing. God wants you well. He's not looking at your past to determine your future. Somebody needs to hear that. God is not looking at your past to determine your future. This is not about you being worthy or you earning or you paying for your miracle. This is just about you receiving what God in His grace and mercy freely offers. So the best thing we can do is everybody lift your hands to heaven. And let's thank God for His miracle power. Thank God for His healing power. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.